Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. It's great to be back on the air, and before I know it, it will be Thanksgiving. But then again, I it should be fair to say that Thanksgiving itself is something that shouldn't be just celebrated once a year. Being in November, uh, it's something that I think we should celebrate all the time. I know that might sound crazy to some people, but we should keep in mind from a historical perspective that um, prior to 1863, when Thanksgiving was considered an official federal holiday, that um, many of people in America, most notably in the 17th and 18th centuries, celebrated Thanksgiving um, in a variety of other ways. In the early years of um, of Virginia's establishment in the New World, especially after Jamestown had been settled, the English would celebrate Thanksgiving feasts where they had um, a good abundance of crops, most notably tobacco. Uh, they would also celebrate um, when a drought had come to an end. Uh, they often would celebrate Thanksgiving feasts, uh, just being perhaps being thankful uh, to be alive and uh, thankful for for an abundance of um, necessities that had been a struggle for some time to have attained, most notably when first coming to the uh, New World after uh, right after 1607. So it's fair to say that uh, throughout history, many people have celebrated Thanksgiving on a more regular basis, but doing so without always having to um, rely on uh, coming to the table and having a big turkey with all of the other um, accessories that go with um, eating because uh, more often than not when we think of Thanksgiving nowadays it's you know some people think it's oh just about sitting at the table and eating food left and right but that's really on one hand yes it's important to you know be with your family and have a nice feast and all but it should not always have to revolve around eating food maybe that's maybe that's what our um, ancestors were um, trying to convey all along that, you know, yes, it's one thing to get together and celebrate, but that it didn't always have to revolve around food. You know, something else um, I was uh, reminded of uh, before we begin uh, this, before we begin tonight's uh, podcast uh, discussion, uh, continuation of American Tempest, how the Boston Tea Party sparked a revolution. Yesterday marked um, the 58th anniversary of President John F. Kennedy's assassination. It's hard to believe that it's been 58 years. You know, I wasn't I wasn't alive when President Kennedy died. Uh, I wouldn't be born for another 16 years till after he died. So therefore, I was born in 1979. However, my father uh, remembers very well very well where he was uh, on the day that he learned of uh, President Kennedy's uh, tragic death. Uh, my dad told me that he was in school. And the teacher came in, very teary-eyed, sad. My dad and his classmates were under the assumption that perhaps something had happened to the teacher within her own family. But then the principal came over the loud calm and um, shared the news of what had happened. My dad said that he himself, along with 
all of his other classmates in the classroom and everyone else were just left stunned, speechless. You could hear, is the way my dad put it, was that you could hear pins drop. They just could not believe that their beloved leader, not just in America, but their beloved leader, um, who is admired by so many people around the world, and of course about delegates from 92 nations around the world attended uh, JFK's funeral, but they just could not believe that their innocence had been taken from them. After all, for my parents, um, the Kennedy assassination was their 9-11. I've read a lot of books about the Kennedy assassination. I've come up with my own theories. Of course, I'm not the only one out there who's come up with his own theories. I could tell you this much, I don't believe that Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone. I do believe that the fatal shot came from the grassy knoll. I do believe that Jack Ruby, who ran the Carousel Club and who ultimately shot Lee Harvey Oswald, was in fact responsible for orchestrating the, um, the assassination in Dallas with the help of several other people. But at the same time, this would be a whole different um, discussion for an entire topic at another time, but it's one of those defining moments that um, really did change America. I often believe if JFK had not been assassinated, we might not have been involved in Vietnam. He was trying to pull troops out of Vietnam. He knew that that war could not have been won. He was um, wanting to splinter the CIA into a thousand pieces, most notably after the debacle at the Bay of Pigs uh, in early 1961. And of course, there were those in the military who uh, did not like the fact that um, rather than going, rather than launching World War III with the Soviet Union, JFK, along with uh, Fidel Castro and Nikita Khrushchev, all came together and um, compromised Khrushchev agreed to remove all the missiles from Cuba, Havana, Cuba, that is 90 miles south of Miami, Florida. And Kennedy was willing to accept Khrushchev's request, and that was to remove all of the um, ballistic missiles, or what we might call intercontinental ballistic missiles, out of uh, Turkey, and uh, most notably with maybe in another country or so, of Eastern Europe that was part of the Soviet uh, Union. So basically, World War III was averted. But sadly, in the eyes of some, it just wasn't enough. Maybe one day from now, I might do a podcast on the Kennedy assassination. It would be worth doing, but if I were to do it, I would make sure that I did all my homework right, because it's one thing to present something to you all, my listeners, but if you don't get your facts straight, or if you don't tell the story right, then how are those listeners going to stay? So, but let's um, keep in mind that JFK's legacy must never be forgotten. And if somebody were to ask me if I did live under a president whom reminded me of John F. Kennedy, who would it have been? That answer is easy. None other than Ronald Reagan. How so? Well, Ronald Reagan wanted to end the Cold War, but by doing so without having to fire a shot. Wasn't that what President Kennedy wanted to do in his time? Yes. Sadly, he didn't get to live to see that dream come true. 
Ronald Reagan knew that the Soviet Union was an evil empire, an evil empire that had lived a failed way of life. Even with Mikhail Gorbachev in coming to the helm in, in the mid-1980s, even Gorbachev knew that the Soviets would never be able to beat the Americans in an arm race. But in the end, Reagan did prevail. The Berlin Wall came down shortly after he left office. Of course, I remember his speech at the Brandenburg Gate back in June of 87. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. He was quite a communicator, a great communicator. And as Margaret Thatcher said it so well, Ronald Reagan won the Cold War without having to fire a shot, without firing a shot. And in the end, he proved to be the Winston Churchill of our time. Yes, so if you ask me if there was anybody, if there was any one president that I did live under whom reminded me of John F. Kennedy, it was Ronald Reagan. He was my JFK. He was the JFK for my generation. Well, anyways, we better um, get on track with um, focusing on Harlow Giles Unger's American Tempest, how the Boston Tea Party sparked a revolution. I'm sure many of you all are probably wanting to know when, in fact, we might talk about those ships that arrived with the tea in late 1773. I'll tell you this much. It won't be much longer till we get back to talking about those ships. But remember... Just because an event happens, it's not an isolated matter. There are several other things that lead up to what happens, most notably in late 1773. And we've already been, um, we've already uncovered a lot of information, but tonight we're going to uncover some more. So fasten your seatbelts and let's get ready to go. Our first question is going to be the following. Had John Hancock inherited his late uncle Thomas's business at a good time. Remember, folks, John Hancock is um, about 27 years old in 1764. And when his uncle Thomas died at the age of 61 from a stroke, John Hancock, for one, is obviously not 30 years old. He's 27, but he's not far from being 30. He is now pretty much the richest man in America and one of Boston, one of Boston's wealthiest merchants. So can you imagine being in John Hancock's shoes? You're not at the age of 30, but you're, sh but you're not far from 30, and all of a sudden you have now inherited a fortune. You knew that it would, maybe it would be a matter of time before this would happen, but at the same time you have to wonder, did it, was it meant to be that I was to inherit this fortune much earlier than expected? So our question again is, had John Hancock inherited his late Uncle Thomas's business at a good time? The answer is no. How come? I mean, aren't we all of a sudden in the process of trying to uh, establish some um, return to normalcy after a long seven years war with the French and the Indians along the frontier? It would appear to be so, yes. However, the reason why John Hancock did not, well, he had no control over um, his uncle's death, but the reason for why this, this came at a bad time primarily had to do with colonial America's economy. Did colonial America's economy take a nosedive after the war? Yes, it did. 
How so? Well, let's keep in mind, folks, that when that given that a war is going on on our frontier territory, what does the what do the British need? The British military, for that matter, they need essential accessories. They need essential provisions, not just salted pork and salted beef. They need shoes. They need um, blankets for their troops. They need tents. They need um, pillows. They need uh, plates. They need um, cups, um, you know, to drink um, a beverage, most notably like, you know, cider or beer, because, you know, water is really not safe to drink. But they, but these are provisions that are benefiting the mother country who is, you know, looking after her subjects so that they don't get attacked by Indians and the French. But the, the thing, though, is that this uh, economy is based upon a wartime economy. And I'll talk more about it here in a moment, but but the but colonial America's economy took a nosedive as directly as a result of the Seven Years' War ending, considering that many merchants sold goods based upon the needs of the British military protecting the frontiers and the coastline. So if it weren't for that, folks, Maybe our economy would still be okay, but there's no guarantee of it. But think about this. The only reason our economy has survived in the Seven Years' War is because we are producing goods to keep the military afloat. Not just afloat, but the military's ability, that is the British military's ability to protect our coastlines as well as along the uh, frontier. What we you know think of as the Ohio Territory, Western Pennsylvania, um, what we would even consider maybe is present-day West Virginia, Kentucky. I mean, all of that is the frontier, folks. Many of New England's merchants, like John Hancock himself, simply were not prepared for what laid ahead in terms of peace following the Seven Years' War ending come 1763. So if Hancock and other New England merchants aren't prepared for peace, how could that be? Well, this might sound odd to say, but it is, it is relevant, and it says a lot. The New England economy was one that had revolved itself around going to or preparing for war. Is it fair to say that that had been the case for a long time? Sure. After all, from a previous podcast, didn't we learn that the New World had been at war since 1613? Think about this, folks. The English, the Spanish, and the French have all carved out establishments in what we now know as the, the thir what we would think of as the 13 colonies. Yeah, every one of the, all three of those nations have a stake. So when you have a stake in something, war itself can't be avoided. It's, you can do everything you can to modify the current circumstances by not going to war at the exact moment, but it's only a matter of time before a bigger escalation of an existing tension or conflict occurs to where more than one nation will be involved. So yes, uh, the New England economy was one that had revolved itself around going to or preparing for war for almost two centuries. 
Thomas Hancock, John's uncle, established what was called the House of Hancock solely on war profits. So all of the goods that Thomas Hancock possessed were really goods that would benefit those whom needed them in times of war. These weren't goods like you would find at a, at a typical grocery store today. You know, walk up and say, oh, I just need a couple of these things, X, Y, and Z. Well, if you're not part of the upper tier um, merchant system, or let alone part of the merchant system, then why should you be purchasing these goods? What use are you going to have with them? On the other hand, John Hancock and other Bostonian merchants saw peacetime as something unprofitable. Think about it. When you're in a time of peace, yeah, that's great. But the goods you own, how are you going to sell those goods if people don't have a need for them? So if Hancock and other Boston, Bostonian merchants come to see peacetime as something unprofitable, that equates to uneven levels behind overall supply and demand of goods that one sector, a.k.a. the military, needed in a time of war. But now that there's peace, or at least we think there's peace, those goods or provisions are no longer needed. So in other words, there we'll, we'll put it this way, there is an overabundance in supply of goods that are now no longer being needed, and yet there is a decrease in demand for them. There's not enough people who need those goods. Was Parliament's 1765 Stamp Act met with hostilities from all corners of America? I would think it'd be fair to say yes. For starters, American printers and publishers opposed mentioning Prime Minister George Grenville's views behind supporting the legislation. How so? Well, if there were those whom were against the Stamp Act, why would you want to print it? Because if you print, an, print this article or two about the Stamp Act, how many people are going to actually rejoice in it? None. And already uh, the Stamp Act is impacting everything paper-related. Think about it, The printing industry alone would suffer many negative repercussions. However, I do believe it is fair to say, and we'll pro and we'll learn this here soon, that there were some newspapers that did publish uh, the Stamp Act, and it would be interesting to find out if there were those whom actually supported it. It wasn't just so much that um, American printers and publishers were impacted by the Stamp Act, but how about lawyers themselves? How about lawyers like John Adams, Samuel Adams's cousin? John Adams vehemently spoke out against the Stamp Act legislation, or let alone the Stamp Act itself. He spoke out against it and emphasized how the law itself took away a free man's right to voice his opposition upon a matter which he had not been given proper consent in submitting to. In other words, Parliament had taxed her subjects, 
without giving anyone 3,000 miles away on the, on the opposite side of the ocean the right to express his displeasure behind a piece of legislation that he had no formal knowledge of ahead of time that he did not know would impact his daily life. It's not just taking away a man's right to say, well, I oppose this legislation, but all of the uh, goods that would be coming over to America that are now being taxed, and not just taxed, but getting placed with stamps. Once the documents get placed with stamps, then they become legible, or what we call valid documents. But there again, why not just place stamps in England? After all, your constituent, your your representatives from Parliament are the ones that voted on it. Why not put it on your all's stamps? But of course, we will find out here soon whether or not the um, agents in America, being the uh, colonial officials or the royal officials, we'll find out here soon if they, in fact, had any real luck behind enforcing this. That's going to be a tough one to enforce, to say the least. But nonetheless, John Adams speaks out vehemently against this legislation with regards to how the law itself took away a free man's right to voice his opposition upon a matter which he had not been given proper consent in submitting to. So basically, a, a man's right was deprived in voicing opposition, knowing that this had been violated through means of improper consent. Now, I know some of you out there are saying, why are you saying a man's right? I'm not saying that I don't value a woman's right, but we have to keep in mind in 18th century, folks, Men are the ones in the legislature. A man is a royal governor. A man is the speaker of, in, case, in the case of Virginia, the House of Burgesses. That's not to say that women can play an, are playing an influential role, especially women like Abigail Adams, John Adams' wife, Martha Dandridge Custis Washington, George Washington's wife. There are women who are playing... Um, a role, but unfortunately, uh, at this time, women aren't anywhere close to winning the right to vote. So let's just keep that in mind that in 1765, politics is a man's, it's a man's um, entity. In other words, it's a man's um, profession. Which Virginia assemblyman a.k.a. Virginia House of Burgess's representative, issued multiple resolutions denouncing the Stamp Act. He wasn't the only prominent Virginian to denounce the Stamp Act, but this man in particular um, issued multiple resolutions that were not confined to just the newspapers alone in Virginia. His name is Mr. Patrick Henry, and in 10 years from now, and ten well, 10 years after 1765, he will go about giving that famous speech at St. John's Bruton Parish Episcopal Church. I know not what course others shall take, but as for me, give me liberty or give me death. But yes, Patrick Henry's resolutions behind denouncing the Stamp Act were printed 
or rather I should say published as far north as in Boston, Massachusetts. And is it fair to say that towns did have more than one newspaper? Perhaps, yes. Not all towns. But your bigger cities like Boston and Philadelphia, New York and Charleston, South Carolina, would in fact have had more than one newspaper printing company. So in Boston, Boston's anti-British newspaper, being um, the Boston Gazette, uh, published Patrick Henry's resolutions denouncing the Stamp Act. However, they also got published in the Boston Chronicle, which was a pro-British newspaper. And the reason why they got published in the Boston Chronicle, it was to denounce, how do I call it, to denounce Patrick Henry's resolutions. In other words, the Boston Chronicle said Patrick Henry's a nutbag. I don't know if they called him a nutbag, but they denounced his um, resolutions. They, um, they frowned upon his resolutions denouncing the act. Is it fair to say that we have uh, partisanship with the newspapers right now? We've got one newspaper that appears to be pro-patriot, um, and then we have another newspaper in Massachusetts that's on the side of the Loyalists. Yep. August 8, 1765, the British government issues the names of colonial distributors whom would sell the stamps. The stamps that would get placed on all those legal documents like marriage certificates, um, cards, dice, um, I mean, anything that's got that's paper-related, it's going to have a stamp placed on it. No paper object's going to get immune from this, folks. But um, in August, on August 8, 1765, the British government issues the names of colonial distributors whom would sell the stamps. The, the distributor from Massachusetts is none other than um, Andrew Oliver, who is the brother-in-law to, to Chief Justice Thomas Hutchinson. August 14th, six days later, angry crowds, and who are those angry crowds, folks? The mob, unruly crowds. They assemble around um, what is known as a Hanover Square. And it's one thing to assemble, but even in 1765, were there other ways that the mob could express their displeasure at someone? Sure. Does anybody know what the word, like, um, what effigy is? Okay, an effigy is where you take a subject or you take a subject of someone and you create it into a model. And it could, it could be like in today's time, like a poster of someone that, you're in, uh, that you oppose and you might have a picture of their face and, and you cross the face out, meaning that you don't like that person's um, policies towards something. We've seen that a lot of times throughout uh, the course of history, not just in America, but elsewhere throughout the world. But in 1765, the unruly crowd takes um, un not so uh, pleasant uh, models of Andrew Oliver being dangled from a large oak tree. The crowds of angry people on this day came and went. But late day, come late day on August the 14th, a large mob crowd got so fed up to where they started out with the following chant. 
liberty, property, and no stamps, only to end with destruction of Andrew Oliver's home. And we're not just talking a uh, one-story home, folks. Andrew Oliver had a mansion, and his mansion was destroyed at the hands of this unruly crowd. You have to remember in 1765, uh, people who were well-to-do didn't have live in the equivalent of what we call gated communities where, you know, it's one thing to go through a gated community in today's time, but you would need to have the access code uh, to be able to get in. Without an access code, you, you're denied access entry. But in 1765, that uh, those who were uh, well-to-do, most notably like Andrew Oliver and Thomas Hutchinson, they didn't have um, a gated um, access code uh, to keep people out of their um out of their uh, mansions or from entering onto the premises of their mansions nearby. Is it fair to say that after Andrew Oliver's home had been destroyed that the following came about? Tempest, or rather I should say teapots in Boston had come to a full boil. Is it the title to Harlow Giles Unger's book American Tempest? Yes, so teapots in Boston have now come to a full boil. It's only a matter of time before the teapots themselves will completely explode. In other words, once the teapots completely explode, it's fair to say that there will be no going back to what was um, in existence prior to the Seven Years' War ending. That's not to say that there were already issues, but there's just simply no going back. And it's fair to say that it's just a matter of time before the teapots explode once and for all. Did the Sons of Liberty movement begin in Boston? Uh, let me ask you this. Um, well, first off, I'll say the answer is no, but I'll give you some other choices. I'll give you three choices. Did the Sons of Liberty movement begin in New York City? Did it begin in Philadelphia or Charleston, South Carolina? The answer is choice A, New York City. Did the Sons of Liberty get, um, did that term Sons of Liberty um, get originated in America or overseas in England? In England. And it was um, coined by British parliamentary sympathizers. And for those of you who've been with me since June of last year, you've heard me mention this in other podcasts, but for those of you who are new, uh, pay attention because this is relevant. Sons of Liberty was coined by British parliamentary sympathizers John Wilkes and Isaac Barry. Wilkes Barry, Pennsylvania, folks, which is located outside of Scranton. That's for whom Wilkes Barry, Pennsylvania is named after, and John Wilkes and Isaac Barry are the two men that came up with the phrase Sons of Liberty. In the aftermath of Andrew Oliver's home being destroyed, Samuel Adams went about organizing the Boston chapter of the Sons of Liberty. The Boston chapter's membership was a secretive one. How so? Well, I'll mention some other people's names here momentarily, but it was so secretive that only Samuel Adams himself and other top leaders were the only ones who knew where membership level stood. Well, it could be fair to say that Boston is the cradle. Boston, Massachusetts is the cradle 
of American independence. After all, everything that's been going on so far is pretty much taking place in Massachusetts. Is it fair to say that men like Samuel Adams and other top-level men, if they spilled the beans out and told people out in the open, oh yeah, John Smith, Tom Jones, yeah, they're in our Sons of Liberty chapter. For all we know, Samuel Adams and some of his other fellow, um, fellow um, Sons of Liberty followers, most notably James Otis Jr., could be spilling the beans to the wrong people to where informants who are loyalists would go and notify Andrew Oliver and Thomas Hutchinson and have those um, men be arrested either for disturbing the peace or for um, taking up actions that, um, that are uh, non-complacent with regards to being um, loyal to the crown. In other words, you should be very careful about how much information you share with outsiders that you um, don't have a um, strong, trustworthy relationship with. Did John Hancock support mob violence against Andrew Oliver's family and the property, a.k.a. the mansion? No, uh, John Hancock did not support mob violence against, against Andrew Oliver's family, let alone his uh, property being that of his home. And the reason for that is because John Hancock's late uncle, Thomas, knew the Oliver family well. The Oliver's the Oliver's family, that is their Massachusetts family ancestral roots, dated back to 1632, 12 years after the first uh, group of settlers um, set foot in present-day Massachusetts. The attacks against Andrew Oliver came from the lower-tier merchants. So, I'm, many of you all are wondering, okay, we hear about the mob, this unruly crowd, who is comprised of the mob? Well, we know that it's not. We know that it's not confined to just one uh, profession of people that make up the mob. But it is fair to say that it was the lower tier merchants, who, in this case, with destroying a Andrew Oliver's property, were the ones that have, had instigated that particular um, event. And many of these uh, lower tier merchants were facing uh, bankruptcy. In other words, they didn't find. Um, times of peace as being profitable and when people aren't buying your goods and you can't sell them then yeah you are um, struggling to stay afloat and in some instances on the brink of bankruptcy and we have to remember there's no such thing as chapter 7 or chapter 11 bankruptcy in 1765. John, John Hancock did in fact have strong ties to smaller tier uh, merchants as well as shopkeepers. He did go as far as writing multiple letters to um, his agent in London, advising him of the colonists' fierce opposition towards the Stamp Act, along with further increases in mob violence acts towards the homes of prominent people whose loyalties lied with king and country, including the Stamp Act. So remember, folks, your loyalties don't always have to be just within the realms of king and country. However, if you are loyal to king and country, it's fair to say you would be loyal to Parliament's passages of legislation that 
yes, has made many unhappy, but only a select few happy. It is fair to say that even in, in 1765, that one-third of, of Boston's population could be, in fact, anti-loyalist, a.k.a. patriot, one-third being loyalist, and the other third, or just shy of a third, neutral. That's just my um, my um, interpretation of it, but we should keep, just keep in mind that it's not um, totally 100% lopsided. As further mob violence incidents took place, John Hancock continued to remain neutral, largely in part because he held out on the grounds that reconciliation between Crown and the colonies would avoid further problems. However, John Hancock knew that the first step towards gradual reconciliation would be for Parliament to repeal what, folks? The Stamp Act. So, did John Hancock empathize with Sam, Samuel Adams and James Otis? Yes and no. Where is the yes part to this? Well, he empathized with Samuel Adams and James Otis in opposition towards all legislation passed by Parliament between 1764 to 1765. He empathized with those two men on the grounds that the... Um, Sugar Act, or what we call the Revenue Act, uh, the Currency Act, and the Stamp Act were all um, what we would now think of in the years after the American Revolutionary War as unconstitutional acts. So yes, Hancock knew that, um, that in all three of those instances that a man's right um, had been denied in terms of um, consenting to something against his own will without being allowed to speak his voice prior to the legislation being passed. However, um, Han John Hancock himself vehemently opposed the destruction of one's property, even if one's loyalties were on the side of the crown. So he knew that um, Andrew Oliver and Thomas Hutchinson, you know, he knew that they lived in mansions but he did not believe that the mob had the right to destroy another man's home. Think about this. Is this a violation of uh, consent here? Yeah. After all, you don't have to like what the loyalists are doing, but should you be allowed to just destroy their home and put their own family's lives at stake? No. This is where people even in 1765, failed to learn how to disagree without being disagreeable. What tavern would become the primary meeting ground for patriot leaders like Sam Adams, James Otis, Paul Revere, Dr. Joseph Warren, and none other than Mr. John Hancock himself? What tavern? I'll give you some choices. Was it the Raleigh Tavern? Was it the Green Dragon Tavern? Or was it Shields Tavern? The answer is choice B, the Green Dragon Tavern. The other two choices are taverns that exist in Colonial Williamsburg right on Duke of Gloucester Street. But it was the Green Dragon Tavern. It was one of those taverns that catered primarily to the Freemasons. But it was one of those taverns that also uh, catered to um, non-Mason men 
It also catered to um, men like Paul Revere who were welcomed. After all, Paul Revere was, you know, a silversmith. And, you know, taverns, you know, shoot, they need uh, fine um, silverware. I mean, you know, men have to, people have to, you know, take their fork and knives to cut up food. So, you, you know, what, what do you need? You need silverware. You have Paul Revere for that. And John Hancock was spending more time at, at this tavern versus his home. Think about this. If he stayed at his home more frequently, he might become a likely target. I'll mention more of that here in a moment. But what gathering took place in New York starting on October 7, 1765? Does anybody know what gathering might have taken place in New York starting on October 7, 1765? The Stamp Act Congress. I did not know um, until a few years back that there had been a Stamp Act Congress. So I can admit that when I was in high school, yes, I learned about the Stamp Act and how it enraged the colonists because of that cry of taxation without representation. But I didn't know that there had actually been a Congress called the Stamp Act Congress that actually came together and tried to um, work their way out of uh, being stuck in a rock in a hard place. So the Stamp Act Congress marked the first time where uh, delegates from all regions of colonial America, being New England, the Mid-Atlantic, to the Southern colonies, uh, came together. Now, I will admit that uh, Virginia was not one of the colonies that sent a delegate. New Hampshire wasn't, which really surprised me. Uh, Georgia and um, North Carolina did not either. But it could be fair to say that maybe Virginia didn't send one a delegate just yet because being the largest of the 13 colonies, let's keep in mind that Virginia has the most to gain, but yet the most to lose. But that doesn't mean, though, that Virginia, um, that many in Virginia um, don't like the Stamp Act because we already learned that Patrick Henry was one of those uh, who did not like it. Neither did George Washington. So this group that assembled in New York City um, convened for 11 days, and they did accomplish a good deal, but one of their biggest accomplishments centered around John Dickinson's work titled Declaration of Rights and Grievances of the Colonists in America. So, uh, where is John Dickinson from, folks? Is he from? He's not from Virginia, because remember, Virginia didn't send any delegates. So, is Dickinson from um, New York? Is he from South Carolina or Pennsylvania? The answer is choice C. He's from Pennsylvania. Dickinson is a member of the Pennsylvania legislature, and he's also a uh, Philadelphia lawyer. John Dickinson's work, being titled Declaration of Rights and Grievances of the Colonists in America, focused on two essentials behind freedom itself. The first one is taxation by consent. And yes, it's one thing for a man to get taxed, but he must have consent. He must be allowed to give his consent to those above him who have proposed the tax. And remember, if, if those above 
propose a tax and pass the tax without advising the people below them being, say, their constituents, then how could mutual consent exist? It can't. Remember what Samuel Adams said? In order for consent to take place, it had to be a legal binding contract where both parties were unanimously on the same page. If they weren't, then the contract itself between both parties was no longer void or was no longer valid. But the other one was a trial by jury. John Dickinson voiced his opposition on the grounds that American ship owners and merchants were now being tried for offenses on non-American soil. In other words, American ship owners and merchants were going as far north as Halifax, Nova Scotia to be tried for their offenses. And those offenses more than likely were on the grounds of um, smuggling illegal goods like molasses from the French West Indies when it should have been from the British West Indies. This, this is where many of, um, of, American, uh, of the American ship owners and merchants were going uh, to be tried for um, offenses. For John Dickinson, he believed that if the offense did not happen overseas, in other words, if you didn't commit a crime in Halifax, Nova Scotia, then why should you, as an American ship owner, be sent up north there to be tried when it wasn't in their jurisdiction to begin with? So for John Dickinson, he firmly believed that if the alleged crime, if, if, a, if an alleged crime had taken place, say in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, then the trial itself needs to be in Philadelphia, where a man can get where a man can have the right to a trial but to a trial by jury that is a jury of his peers so for dickinson the trial must be held in the jurisdiction where the alleged crime took place and one was innocent until proven guilty by a jury of his peers so that's so we have another lawyer to thank down the road for um, trial by jury, and we'll talk more about that man eventually again soon. But it is fair to say that John Dickinson is laying the groundwork for one of our um, essential Bill of Rights that exists in the U.S. Constitution to this, to this day since 1787. I'll mention it again, but I'll just say it now. The right to a fair and speedy trial. So isn't John Dickinson arguing the fact that, hey, if you commit a crime, well, well, yes, it's one thing to commit a crime, and yes, you should still have a, a right to a fair trial, but if you've been charged with an alleged crime, then you must be given the right to a trial by jury, a, a trial by jury where you would be proven innocent, where, you're, where you are innocent until proven guilty. So for John Dickinson, he, he opposed Parliament's abuses, abuses, that is, but at the same time, he was a firm believer in reconciliation between the Crown and the colonists. And that will certainly play out in 1776 with the Olive Branch Petition, the last resort to get Parliament and the Crown to admit that, that their injustices had been wrong against the colonists. 
John Dickinson was the one who um, who said that the um, that an apron when an apron was tied from behind that the knot represented the colonies being tied to the, the greater apron as a whole being uh, the mother country England for John Dickinson if the knot became undone then the bond between the mother country and the colonies would cease to exist. For John Dickinson, um, independence was more of a thing about maturity. It's one thing to want independence, but it, is it another thing to assume that you will be mature enough to run your own government without the help of an institution from above that has been uh, connected to you for over a hundred years? So even in 1765, it would be fair to say, okay, if you wanted to um, declare your separation from England tomorrow, what kind of government are you going to have? In other words, what are you going to replace this with? And who's to say that the government that you select will still be there a year from now, and will you be happy with it? We could also say, too, that Parliament's very worried about whether about the fact that it's one thing to have a tyrant 3,000 miles away, but what about 3,000 tyrants in the opposite direction? Think about that one. Uh, did John Hancock support uh, boycotting British goods in response to opposing the Stamp Act? Yes. Had he not supported this boycott, many would have seen his loyalties on the side of king and country, a.k.a. England, and had he not supported the boycott, he also ran the risk of having his personal property, being that of his home, destroyed by angry mobs. It's fair to say that John Hancock has been walking a very, very, I don't know if I'd say a thin line, but one of those lines that can make or break him in the eyes of those who will either see him as being a patriot or of a loyalist, but, if he re but the longer he remains neutral, the more vulnerable John Hancock not only becomes as a person, but that of his uh, property becomes more vulnerable. And who's to say that if he doesn't make up his mind here soon, that you know somebody might just want to take him out? I mean, you just never know with, with violence at this time and how bad it can escalate to. November 1st, 1765 is the day that the Stamp Act went into play. Stamps are available but no officers, due to ha their having resigned, including Massachusetts's Andrew Oliver. Business went on as normal with merchants filing documents with purchase order numbers. That's nothing new. Purchase order numbers are still around today with shipping. These documents being filed were for purchase order numbers for spring merchandise. However, the orders were not to be filled until Parliament did the following, and that was to revoke the Stamp Act altogether. Had American merchants boycotting of British goods taken a severe toll on English merchants? Yes. British exports had dropped 14% by the start of 1766. British merchants went as far as demanding that Parliament Repeal the Stamp Act. Did you hear that, folks? British merchants in their own country are now demanding that Parliament repeal the Stamp Act as their goods 
remained intact inside and outside warehouses outside of London, most notably in Bristol, which is on the southwest coast of, um, of England, Liverpool, well to the north of London, as well as in Manchester, just to name a few cities. Hey, there's a place in Virginia called Bristol, Virginia, which is in southwest Virginia. There are uh, cities across the United States with Liverpool, most notably like Liverpool, New York, outside of Syracuse. John Hancock's London agents were all in favor of Parliament repealing the Stamp Act. So even Hancock himself can breathe a sigh of relief here. What takes place in London on March 18th of 1766? Parliament has officially repealed the 1765 Stamp Act. Hallelujah! A first has been achieved. And what makes this even better is that no single, or I should say individual stamp, ever got placed on an official colonial document. The British government never collected any new taxes. The act itself contributed to the first organized opposition movement against the rule of monarchy, along with government taxation in the colonies. Parliament should realize by now that her subjects, uh, being those 13 colonies, really aren't stupid people. But at the same time, Parliament also knows that they don't have time to get bossed around by a group of people whom, whom choose to remain defiant. After all, by now in 1765, going into 1766, King George III is now beginning to realize or not to realize, he calls his subjects, being the 13 colonies, ungrateful subjects. He sees them now as a bunch of spoiled, rotten brats who don't want to help out. They don't want to make the sacrifices on their end, like what the British military did in protecting their subjects from Indian and French raids along the frontier, or even attacks along the coastline. While Parliament does have a point there, However, you know, it's one thing to impose a tax on an Englishman, but that doesn't mean that an Englishman alone will agree to the tax, especially knowing that if, they're, if, they're, if they had not been given proper consent to the tax ahead of time. So it's one thing to uh, pass something, but if you don't give the people below you the proper consent, then how can consent itself have any relevancy? This, um, the repeal of the Stamp Act was very, very joyous, and by mid-May of 1766, Boston's people engaged in festivities celebrating Parliament's Stamp Act repeal. Sadly, though, the festivities would, would not last forever, as England would soon again make her subjects all the more uncomfortable. Well, when I'm on the air again with you all next time, we are going to learn more about Parliament's refusal to bend. In other words, we've already repealed the Stamp Act, but just because we repeal the Stamp Act, that doesn't mean we have any other tricks up our sleeve when it comes to not just passing legislation that in the eyes of the colonists is a uh, violation of improper consent, but in the eyes of Parliament they are firmly set on getting revenue. Revenue 
that will help their coffers grow, that will help, what do you call it, them get out of the spiraling deficits they've been in from the Seven Years' War. Parliament knows they've got to come up with something because if not, their treasury will remain in what we call dire straits. Remember, folks, Parliament already has seen about 145 million pounds in debt from the Seven Years' War. So, well, we've covered a lot of ground, as always. Thank you for listening. And for those of you who live in the United States and serve in the military overseas, happy Thanksgiving to all of you. And for the rest of you, no matter where you all live in the world, continue to stay safe. And um, as I said earlier, yes, it's hard to believe it's been 58 years since President uh, John F. Kennedy passed away, but his legacy must always uh, be uh, remembered. And if for those of you who are looking for a good book to read about JFK, there are many of them. Uh, one I read uh, some years back, it was called JFK and the Unspeakable, Why He Died and Why It Matters. Very powerful book, to say the least. Well, thank you again, as always, for listening. I look forward to being back on the air again soon with all of you. Take care for now and stay safe.